I'm curled up in my grandparents' leather sofa in the big room next to the dining room, the one with the ticking more clock, creaking floorboards, old books, and framed photos of me, my sibling, and our cousins. Like so many times before, my entire family is sitting around the sofa table, drinking coffee following a large dinner. And my grandpa starts telling stories of the war. My sibling has long left the table, but I want to memorize every word of the stories I've heard so many times before. My grandma's also heard the stories many times, and uh, she doesn't wait long to hop in when he pauses, looking for the words. Grandpa grew up in Germany in the 1930s and was drafted into the German army as a foot soldier the day he finished high school in 1940. I, in turn, grew up hearing his stories. Stories of how he plucked lice falling from the logs forming the ceiling of his sleeping pit off his uniform in the winter, and how he survived after the war by smuggling stolen goods across the border between the post-war zones of East and West Germany. Though his stories always felt very distant from my own reality, they've come to form a large part of my identity, in that way which only great stories can. From an early age, I remember feeling a close and very personal connection to individual stories from the Second World War, likely stemming from the many stories Grandpa told me growing up. To this day, two of the books that have impacted me the most are Cloud-Free Bomb Night by Vibeke Olsson and City of Thieves by David Benioff. Two stories I highly recommend reading of regular people being dragged into situations and a war they felt unable to affect. Now, my connection to stories and storytelling is by no means unique. Stories form the very foundation of our humanity, connecting our present to the past and the individual to the communal. It's arguably the main ingredient to our recipe for success in global domination. In a cultural and historical examination of the fairy tale genre, Jack Zipes argues that humans have told stories since they were able to talk and perhaps even before that by using sign language. The Sumerian poem Enmarkar and the Lord of Arata from like 1800 BC carved onto a large stone to this day tells us the story of how words were carved into clay for the first time. And cave paintings from the Chauvet Cave in France leave traces of religious stories from the Aurignacian period 35,000 years ago. Until very recently, most humans were illiterate, and stories remained mainly oral or visual, told by traveling professional storytellers whose only job was to memorize tales and recite them to the villages they were visiting. Villages gathered around the storyteller to hear him recite the stories he'd been taught, often using a repeated rhythm and intonation to remember the structure and content of the story. The physical closeness of this type of storytelling allowed for a greater flexibility and closer relationship between the story, its teller, and its audience, as the listeners were physically part of the unfolding of the story and able to react. This type of storytelling continues around dinner tables, campfires, and books to this day, and forms the basis of our connection to stories. 
However, though the core of storytelling remains in the circular gathering, stories have transcended the personal and entered the communal domain. In his 2011 mega-successful book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which chances are you've read, Yuval Harari argues that the only reason why humans have been able to work effectively together is because we've invented myths or stories to cooperate through. He says, Fiction has enabled us not merely to imagine things, but to do so collectively. We can weave common myths such as the biblical creation story, the dreamtime myths of the Aboriginal Australians, and the nationalist myths of modern states. Such myths give sapiens the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Let me explain. Humans used to live in smaller bands of individuals, which, together with other bands, formed the larger groupings of tribes. Their societies were tied together through the interpersonal trust that came from growing up together and personally knowing one another. But there's a limit to how many people one can know and trust on a personal level, and that number has canonically been accepted to be around 150 under a theory called Dunbar's number. That's 150 people we're cognitively able to uphold close enough relationships with to personally trust. When humans started to settle down as a consequence of the agricultural or Neolithic revolution around 12,500 years ago, cities and larger settlements soon started to form, both due to population growth and to the gravitation towards arable land. Harari argues that this is when we started to rely on myths to do our everyday transactions with, and evaluations of others. Since we could no longer trust in the person, we needed something in common to trust, so that we in turn could trust each other. Myths and stories now formed more of a functional cornerstone of society than ever before, as it became the middleman of our transactions. Again, Harari. Myths and fictions accustomed people nearly from the moment of birth, to think in certain ways, to behave in accordance with certain standards, to want certain things, and to observe certain rules. They thereby created artificial instincts that enable millions of strangers to cooperate effectively. This network of artificial instincts is called culture. So again, myths such as the biblical creation story, money, and the existence of nation states are fictional stories completely made up by humans that we're taught to build our lives around from day one in order to properly function within societies. They're needed to create networks of artificial instincts or cultures. And without these structures and myths to believe in, we would not be able to cooperate on the levels we currently are. In this new series called Collecting Histories, we're taking a closer look at the very narratives and myths forming the conceptual structures of nationhood, belonging within and across borders, entitlement, and the origins of them. I'm going to ask you and myself why we feel connected and belongingness to our nations. Why are we drawn to them, and how were they constructed to be what they are? In episode 1, Sophia and I dove into the turbulent and ever-changing narrative of the Argentine past, examining the different aspects Argentinians see as essential to their heritage, a constant reaffirmation of identity as a consequence of its mere existence. 
In episode two, we'll explore the role which schools and formal education plays in the formation of national identity through a close look at the national narrative high school students are taught from coast to coast in the United States of America, and the peculiar environment in which this became and remained a quote-unquote national narrative. For episode three, we're going to be more specific in our discussion on how nationalist narratives were made, why they were made, and where it all started, by looking specifically at Sweden's original national narrative, the national romantic story of Swedish glory. Episode four will drill into the role which symbols have in the formation of narrative and identity. It will bring us on a musical and semantic journey of what made India, India, examining the very symbols that invented, molded, and sustained a nation, as well as the conditions which spurred its existence. In episode 5, we'll delve into the individual and societal effects of labels. Specifically, we'll tackle the infected, cluttered, complex, and entangled national identity labels and names of the British Isles. So, why does this matter? Why am I doing this? Well, we're living in an age of absurd access to and thirst for stories. My thirst for them started around that dinner table at my grandparents' house with my grandpa telling war stories, but has only grown stronger to the point where I honestly fear it's taking over my life. Everywhere I look now, there are more or less explicit narratives to be found, explored, wiggled out, and pondered. In the rugged bricks of my London apartment building, in the stickers of my friends' laptops, in the labels we use to present ourselves with. But throughout my education, it's become clearer to me that stories and quote-unquote things are more than just what they appear to be. Every quote-unquote thing and story that surrounds us has an author, intended audience, another, and most importantly, a purpose. And in a world of great unity, but also great polarity, narratives of identity, belonging, and entitlement will only become more and more important and impactful to us. National narratives gain hold in the minds of people, creating a stronger us, but a weaker them, as leaders appeal to emotion to gain wider support for their own interests. Debates grow sharper as no one has answers, but rely on fallacies and questionable sources. But, perhaps worst of all, I feel that few of them question the very foundation on which they're basing arguments and telling stories. And that's what I want to do, because, boy, do I have questions. A new episode will be released every Tuesday, and will be posted on all podcast platforms as well as on our website. Each episode will also be accompanied by further resources, reading, and materials on the website, so if you're interested in that, head on over to collectinghistories.com. Also, be sure to follow us on social media for some collages, artwork, and general updates. Bye!